Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 6, verses 49 to, or 14 to 29 this morning. Verse 14, beginning to 29. Friends, how many of you make decisions every day? We all do, don't we? The decisions we make often reflect the quality of life that we live. God made us with minds. He gave us intuition. He gave us the ability to have him speak to us so that we could make decisions that honor him according to his will and his word and his way. And sometimes what happens is we forget the opportunity we have to make decisions. And when we don't make decisions, we can end up in a lethargic place. But God says, no matter what your place in life is, make decisions that honor me. If you're in a difficult relational situation, find the decision that honors me. If, you, if you, your, your bills are high and your funds are low, come to me and make a decision that will help put the pieces of, that, of your life back together. Sometimes when the, decision, the decisions we make are, are us reacting or responding to something that happened to us. Peter Singe tells a story of speaking at uh, the World Bank. He was a, an instructor at MIT's Sloan School of Management, and he went there to give a presentation. And while there, he met a man by the name of Fred. And Fred revealed to Peter that he had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and given only a few months to live. So you can imagine when a person has that happen, they go through the point of denial, they go through all the different feelings and emotions associated with that kind of news, but he made a decision. He said, for no matter how long I am, whether it's three months or four months, what I'm going to do, I'm going to start living like there's no tomorrows. I'm going to just do what's important. I'm not going to do the things that don't matter. I'm not going to do the peripheral things. I'm going to do the things that are, un, that are important and not do the things that aren't. And his life took on a, a scope because he began a different level of living because he began to live his life to the utmost. Well, some months later, a friend of his said, you know, Fred, you might want to go and get another diagnosis. So he went to another doctor, and the doctor said that he told him that he'd been misdiagnosed, that he didn't have a terminal disease. He had an illness, but it was curable. And when he got that news, Fred be said he began to weep. He began to cry. <clears throat> now, why did he cry? Friends, he didn't cry because he was going to live. He cried because he was afraid that his life would go back to the way it used to be where he would do the things that are unimportant. He would get caught up in a life of not doing those things that really matter. Let me tell you this to begin with this morning. God wants every one of us, he wants you and he wants me to live a life that matters. And sometimes uh, I can get in a situation because I want to please someone, I'll do something that are lower down on the priority pole than I should be doing. And what we need, we need examples. How do you live life to the best? How do you make good decisions that are going to matter? matter in your relationships and matter in your life. Well, the story we're looking at this morning is an example of two men, two men who made decisions. John the Baptist was a man who made great decisions and honored God. Herod Agrippa was a man who made poor decisions and ended up living his life without God. Let's read the story beginning with verse 14, and then we're going to talk about what's going on here. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it for Jesus his name had been become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. 
But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had, been, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, her mother, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. What a story. What a story. What intrigue. What, what, what foolish decisions can be made when we're not careful. Now let's begin with verses 14 to 16 and break the passage down. We read in verse 14 that Herod had begun to hear about John the Baptist. Now why did he begin to hear about John the Baptist? Because John the Baptist was doing some amazing things. He was performing miracles. Well, he, because Jesus was doing miraculous things, Herod thought he was John the Baptist. And why was he hearing about Jesus? He was hearing about Jesus because of the miracles Jesus was doing. If we go back to chapter 5, we read, first of all, that he healed a man, a demonically possessed man. This man was running wild in the cemetery, scaring him. Jesus spoke the demons out of him. And the Bible says that this man was sitting quietly in his right mind, no longer controlled by the, the demons that had taken over his life. Next in chapter 5, we read that a religious leader had come to Jesus and said, you know, my daughter is dying. Would you come to her? And the Bible says that Jesus left and immediately went in with this man to see his daughter. And in the midst of this trip, there was a lady, a desperate lady in the crowd that was following Jesus. She had an issue of bleeding blood and she could not get it stopped. And she thought to herself, no, no doctors can cure me. I spent all the money I have with doctors who haven't been able to help me. She said, if I just touch his robe, what faith? If I just touch his robe, if I just get within his proximity and touch his robe, she had faith she would be healed. And friends, that's exactly what happened. She got close to Jesus. She touched his robe. And the Bible said that Jesus' healing power went out of, out of him into her. And of course, at that point, we know Jesus stopped, had a discussion with her. And as they were talking, as Jesus was talking to this woman who was healed, the Bible tells us that one of Jairus' officials from his home came and said, don't bother Jesus, your daughter is dead. Well, that didn't stop Jesus. The crowd moved on to Jairus' house. He had all the mourners removed. And Peter, James, John, and Jesus and the child's parents went into the room where the girl lay dead. And Jesus looked at this little girl and said, little girl, I say to you, arise. And when he said those words, the power of God entered this little girl. Her heart started beating. Her lungs filled with air. The blood began to surge. Her eyes opened. And he said to them, now go give her something to eat. Why? Because she was worn out from being sick. All this news had gotten to Herod. And he had made his own conclusion regarding 
what had happened and his own conclusion regarding who it was because people were asking, who is it doing? Who is it that's doing these miracles? How can this be? And some said, well, that's John the Baptist, the man that Herod beheaded, come back to life. Others said it's Elijah. Others said he is a new prophet like the ones of old. Verses 17 to 20. They provide, these verses provide information why Herod was so quick to say that Jesus was actually John the Baptist returned from the dead. In verses 17 and 20, we read that, that John the Baptist had held Herod and his wife Herodias accountable for a sin in their life. And what was a sin? John the Baptist had come and said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And what this is, this created a string of animosity and anger from Herodias, as Herod's wife, to John the Baptist. Now the question is, did John the Baptist do anything wrong that caused him to be thrown in prison? And of course, if we look at the passage, the answer is no. Herodias wanted John not only thrown in prison, Herodias, Herod's wife, wanted him killed. Now, why did she want him killed? Because John was going around teaching, teaching and telling people that the relationship that she had with King Herod was an illicit relationship. See, Herodias was married previously to Herod's half-brother. He had seduced Herodias and asked, come and marry me. And not only that, Herodias was the daughter of another one of his half-brothers, so she was also his niece. So John made it plain, I'm going to tell the truth about you. First of all, you're committing adultery, and second of all, you're committing incest. And John went, and he began to tell everybody, and in fact, the Bible says that what he did, he came to Herod himself and said, it is not lawful under Jewish law for you to have your brother's wife. So what did this do to Herodias? What did this do to Herod? Well, Herodias hated the fact that John had exposed what was going on in their life, and she wanted him to pay. So her Herod threw John in jail, not because of anything John had done, but to appease his wife and to have truth be known. See, friends, if there's one thing we know about John the Baptist is that he was a truth teller and he didn't water down the truth. He was a man of immense courage and immense moral strength. He denounced sin and called people to radical repentance. He didn't pussyfoot around the issues. He didn't come and say, well, just what do you think it is? He said, this is the area of your life that needs to be transformed. And in fact, at one time, he called the religious leaders a brood of vipers because of how they were poisoning and attacking the people. So from all this, John begins to come to the conclusion that Jesus was in fact John the Baptist and he was returning to make Herod pay for what he did to him. Anger is a horrible thing, friends. That's what had filled Herodias' life. She had gotten upset because of what John had done, and she was filled with such anger that she wanted him dead. How many of us have ever let anger take root in our lives? There was a newspaper ad that read this, wedding dress for sale, never worn, will trade for a 38 caliber pistol. Thomas Jefferson believed that when you're angry, count to 10. If very angry, count to 100. Mark Twain added a more secular approach to that. He said, if you're angry, count to four. If you're very angry, swear. How many of us have done that? 
You might have heard of the man who was told by his doctors that he had rabies, and when the man found this out, he immediately began to pull out a piece of paper and a pencil and began writing, and the doctor said, no, he's thinking he was writing out his will. He said, you don't have to worry. This is not a terminal illness. We can, we can cure you. You don't have to write a will. And the man said, I'm not writing out a will. I'm writing out a list of people that I want to bite. <laughs> See, what happens if we are not careful with anger? It takes root in our lives, and it begins to slowly grow and slowly infiltrate other areas of our life. Herodias was angry, and she wanted revenge. So Herod did not arrest John for anything he had done. He arrested Herodias because her anger was overwhelming, and he hoped this was appeased, would appease her. Verses 21 to 23, we read these first four words. But an opportunity came. What did an opportunity come for? An opportunity came for Herodias to continue her plan of punishing and trying to kill John the Baptist. Verses 21 and 23 tell us, describe an all-men's birthday party that Herod threw for himself and other of his friends and cohorts. And it said that it was an all-male event, and the Romans were known for holding celebrations that were less than pure. John MacArthur describes these events this way, for Romans, birthday parties were excuses for uninhibited revelry often characterized by overindulgence, gluttony, drunkenness, and sexual deviance. Well, this was the situation that Herodias had been waiting for. She knew the environment. She knew there'd be drinking. She knew there'd be un impure things happening. And so she went and got her daughter, Salome, and said, what I want you to do is I want, I want you to dance at your dad's birthday party. Well, Herod thought it was a great idea, so he had his daughter dance. But it wasn't just any dance. It was a dance that inebriated, inebriated men would respond to in less than pure ways. So Salome, Herodias' daughter, danced. The men liked it. Herod was inebriated and does something very foolish. For it says that when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And then he bowed to her. He just didn't make a, pro make a promise. He made a vow. And if you made a vow in this culture... You had to keep it or have a pretty good explanation for why. He says, he, he made a vow, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Friends, this is exactly what Herodias hoped would happen. She wanted to put Herod in a place where he was obligated to fulfill and to do what she asked him to do. Verses 26 to 28. Friends, never doubt the, that alcohol and, in, and an impure environment can affect your judgment. For as I said... Herod comes, he makes a vow, he said, give me whatever you want, or ask me for whatever you want, up to half my kingdom I will do it. And what does Herodias' daughter come in and ask for? I can only imagine that the men there that Herod was saying, oh, she'll, you know, in our day, she'll want a pony, she'll want something nice, she'll want some new clothes, she'll want whatever it is. But she went back to her, her mother, and her mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And the Bible says that when she said this, that Herodias, that Herod was immediately sorry. Sorry for having his stepdaughter dance. Sorry for having the party. Sorry for drinking too much. Sorry for making such a foolish vow. There was a hushed quiet in the room. And Herod was left with two options. Option one, he could break his vow and have it be known to the country and also in Rome that he didn't keep his vows, which would threaten and to come against his leadership, or he could keep his vow and kill John the Baptist, beheading him. And that's exactly what he did. 
the prophet of God was killed. In verse 29, we have the last verse of this section. And this verse is probably one of the most understated verses in this passage, for it says this, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. When a person was in jail in this time of year, often family members would have direct contact with the person who was in in jail. They would bring food, they would bring nourishment, they would bring encouragement. So quite possibly John's disciples, his family had been visiting him in his jail and things seemed to be normal. And then word got out that Herod had killed John the Baptist in a way of being tricked and appeasing his wife. Can you imagine the grief, the pain, the hurt the disciples of John the Baptist had as they came and took his headless body and buried it in a tomb? Now they had all their emotions to deal with. This story talks about the courage of John, the uncontrollable anger of Herodias, the weakness and foolishness of Herod, and the anguish of John the Baptist's disciples. So what do we learn from this story? What is it that you and I can take from this story and say, God, implant these truths upon the internal, into, on my conscience, in my heart, and in my mind? Number one, the first thing we learn is that guilt leads to fear and inner turmoil. Guilt leads to fear and inner turmoil. Why did John, why did Herod believe that John the Baptist had come back from the dead? He believed that because of what he had done to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not put in prison. He wasn't killed because of anything he had done. He was killed by by a crazy Roman king that knew he had done something wrong. See, the only reason that John, that the king would make the assumption that this was John the Baptist come back to life, he was always looking over his shoulder. He knew that he was doing something wrong. And when he saw Jesus, he said, that is not Jesus. That's John the Baptist who is coming to make me pay for what I've done to him. The impact of guilt on our lives can be tremendous. Sir Arthur Dole decided to play a trick, a practical joke on his friends. So he sent each of them a message, a telegram, And the message, the telegram said this, flee at once, all is discovered. Within 24 hours, all 12 of the men had left the country. They had spent their life looking over their shoulder, guilt playing a major role in everything they did. Guilt can cause us to spend so much time looking back, we can't look forward or enjoy the present. So what's the solution? The solution is, is when we sin, we confess. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all sin, to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So what is God's message to you and me through this? First of all, when you and I sin, the first thing we are to do is to confess, to get rid of the guilt, to allow the guilt to be a motivator of saying, I don't want to live this way the rest of my life. So whatever it is, large or small, to confess it. I had a situation this week where I uh, saw something that published that shouldn't have been published, and I made a phone call to the person that did it, and I was too aggressive in sharing that, and I ended up realizing, man, I, I went way overboard on this. So I called the person and left a message, wasn't able to talk with them and say, you need to know I'm sorry. I over-responded. Now, you know what I could have done? I said, well, I could have justified that, saying, well, it was the right thing to do in that situation, friends, but what the Spirit of God was telling me, he said, Barry, you were too rough. So I had the choice of either calling and confessing 
or hardening my heart and thinking I was justified in what I did. Friends, when we ever have to ask that question, whether when we're trying to justify what we're doing, that is a sure sign that we need to get on our knees and first of all say, God, forgive me for what I've done is wrong. You know what sin is? Sin is saying, when we confess sin, we're saying, God, what I did is wrong and you are right. And then the Bible says we not only we not only confess it to God, but then we confess that sin to someone else. Like I called this individual, I will at some point talk to this person, I called and left the message. But we need to, if we have offended somebody, we go and we confess to them. And if it's something that where we have sinned within our heart, the Bible says that we need to go to another brother or sister we trust and we confess that sin again. Why? Because the Bible says by doing that, you'll be healed. In other words, the devil, by, when, if, I can, if I blow it, and I go up to Glenn and say, Glenn, I made this mistake. And Glenn then gives me love and acceptance back. You know what that is? That's a, a picture of the, an example of my heavenly father doing the same thing. And it releases the guilt so that what? I can live in freedom. Friends, one of the greatest things Satan wants to do to your life and my life, he wants us to bundle up guilt because guilt keeps us from effectively serving God. Guilt minimizes our ability to serve God. And so God is beseeching us when we, when we blow it, be the first, the first words out of our life, oh God, I'm sorry. And then complete that healing by talking to someone else. Number two, hearing the truth leads to repentance or defiance. See, when you hear the truth, when I hear the truth, when somebody says, Barry, that was, you were out of line, I can either repent and say, boy, you were right about that, I was, I was wrong, or I can get defiant and say, well, what right do you have to tell me what to do? And we can get defiant and begin to push it. With Herodias, the first thing she should have done is said, John is right, how do we fix this? But the Bible says that she chose not to do that. She chose to be defiant. She pushed against John. She pushed her husband to silence John. And defiance, friends, that never stays in one place. It grows. It becomes greater and greater until our life becomes consumed with the defiance that would be fixed if we would just be willing to confess. The Bible says that defiance will grow into bitterness, and Hebrews 12 says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. What a great statement. You and I are not to fail to receive God's grace. It is here, it is available in abundance. And the Bible says that when we blow it and we avail ourselves of God's grace, that we are forgiven. He says, first of all, see to it that no one, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. How many of us have got in trouble, more trouble, because we've covered a sin rather than confessed it? One sin leads to another sin leads to another sin. We cause more trouble, and what does it say? It will be defiled. You know what the word defiled means? To make dirty, foul, or unclean. So what is the solution? Again, to repent. Repent of your bitterness. Follow the instructions of Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, where Paul in both those sections say, and get rid of all anger, bitterness, strife. Get rid of it. Get it out of your system. Get it to the point where it no longer has a hold on your life. Again, when we repent, we're saying, God, I was wrong. You were right. Forgive me. We take his grace and we move ahead with a new understanding of who God is. So you know what should motivate us to serve God, friends? The grace of God that forgives us. The grace of God that heals us. The grace of God that cleanses us. The grace of God that takes a broken vessel like me and you and makes us what? Makes us whole in his eyes for his purposes, for his glory. One of the things we are so hesitant to do, to repent and confess. I hate having to tell my wife I'm sorry. I hate it. What? Not, that's not right. I don't, I don't hate it. I find it very hard to do. 
Because when I do that, first of all, I have to admit, number two, I have to make myself vulnerable. So I have to swallow the pride and realize that because Joy loves me, she is going to tell me the truth. Because why? Because she wants me to be a better man. You know what God wants? He wants you and I to be better people. He wants you and I to be his church. He wants, to be, he wants us to be his children in a way that expands what we can do because we're filled with his love and with his mercy. Number three, a righteous, holy life is noticed. If there's one thing that is true about John the Baptist, people knew that the man was a holy and righteous and good man. He was a good man. And because of that, Herod tried to save him. He knew he was a holy and righteous man. So he put him in jail basically to tuck him, his wa- tuck him away to protect him from being killed by his wife. So the question is, is how, how, does a, how do we get our life to be righteous? How do we get to be noticed for being righteous and good and holy? The only way that happens, friends, is by you and I being close to God. When we get into his word and we read it slowly and we meditate on it, and as we're reading, we say, Holy Spirit, help me to understand it with an open heart. When we pray with openness, you know, worshiping God, admitting our sin, and and then humbly asking for his help. Friends, the degree of our holiness will be exactly connected to the degree of the relationship we have with God. Psalm 37 says this, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. What are these verses saying? It's talking about a relationship with God, that we are to trust in him, that we are to take delight in him. We are to commit our way to him. We are to be obedient. And if that happens, then this next verse happens. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. He will make your righteous reward, a a reward of righteousness, that you are a righteous person. It'll be like the sun rising every day. People will know, boy, there's Joe. He is a righteous man. As we live, as we are close to God, God's righteousness becomes a part of our life. And your vindication like the noonday sun. In other words, we will be seen above reproach and people who are following God and being transformed. A noticeable holy life is a result of maintaining an intimate, close walk with Jesus. Number four, authority without accountability leads to an abuse of that authority. Do you believe that? That authority without accountability leads to an abu- can lead to an abuse of that authority. Friends, I wish I could say that every, that every leader was so pure in heart that they could have unlimited authority and not mess up with it. We have seen story after story of how that doesn't happen because we are born with original sin. King Herod was isolated. He was left to himself, to his own wisdom, to his own weaknesses, to his own lack of discipline. And this is it. A lack of discipline will overshadow your greatest strength. A lack of discipline in my life and in your life will overshadow our greatest strength. And what that means is we can have wonderful gifts, wonderful strengths, But if we blow it in too many areas, what are people going to remember? They're going to remember our undisciplined nature. They will not remember how holy or good we are or what our strength was when we did it outside the power of God. What would have happened if Herod would have had a group of men surrounding him that he knew loved him and would give him good and godly counsel? And before he made any big decisions about anything, he would go to these men and, and ask for their direction. They would have encouraged him not to commit adultery. They could have warned him about hosting events where drinking and other forms of debauchery are present, where that can go on. They would have, he would have had their thoughts in his head when he was tempted to make a vow that he didn't know what the outcome would be. What's the solution? Seek accountability and godly counsel. 
Seek accountability in your life and in my life. Seek accountability in godly counsel. Pray and look for God, godly men and women who are two or three steps ahead of you, men and women that you can trust, men and women that you can go to, and you can say, I need help with this. What am I missing here? Is there something else I need to be doing? And you are open to receiving counsel from people you respect. And friends, when we begin to do that, first of all, our stress level goes down because we're not carrying it alone. And number two, we make better decisions and we live better lives. Seek accountability and godly counsel. If you are a leader, if you are in a position of leadership over others, do not be afraid to ask the hard questions. If you are a man and have close friends, do not be, do not be hesitant to ask those close friends questions that will help them live godly lives. To be so committed to those you are close to that you risk being misunderstood in order to ensure that there are no gaps through which that person might fall. Number five, there is a cost associated with doing what is right. John did what was right, and there was a tremendous cost. He was murdered. King Herod didn't do what was right, and there was a cost associated for him too. These are men were two opposites. Let me read what Kent Hughes how he describes these two men, how he compares them. John was austere and simple. Herod was flamboyant and ornate. John was righteous. Herod was a man addicted to indulgence in sexual sensual pleasures. John was a man of immense moral courage. Herod was a man who lived in spineless reality. John was a man who kept his conscience and lost his head. Herod was a man who took John's head and lost his conscience, the death of his soul. What is the solution? When we are tempted to go either way, do what is right, period. Do what is right, entrusting the God of heaven to sustain and keep you. Number six, weak morals collapse under pressure. Weak morals collapse under pressure. When having to choose between his moral convictions, knowing what was right, and pleasing those around him, Herod's morals collapsed, and he avoided doing the right thing and ended up in inner turmoil. So what do we, what can you and I do to make sure that our morals do not collapse when, we're giving a cho- when, we're, when we are given a choice, either to do right or to surrender and do what is easy? What do we need to do? We need to know what we believe and stand strong. We need to know what's right. We need to know what we believe. We need to know our limits. We need to know our boundaries. We need to decide beforehand what you're willing to die for because the day will be coming when we might have to make that choice. What is your list of moral convictions that you will not surrender? What will you refuse to sit for? What will you stand in the gap to protect? How will your moral character, your values, your virtue be described in your future at your funeral? Will you be described as a bending stalk of celery or as a solid rod of steel when it comes to standing for what God has called us to stand for? Remember that if we do not stand for something, we can be in danger of falling for anything. What is our moral fiber? What is it in my life that I have said, I will not give in to this, I will not do that, I will not go there, I will not participate in this, this is what I believe in truth. Know what you believe and stand firm. Number seven, our decisions impact and affect other people. Did Herod's decision to murder John affect people? It affected more people than we knew. I can only imagine, as I said, the grief of John's disciples having to come and take his headless body. What a horrible thing to have to do and bury it in the tomb. 
Friends, never doubt that your decisions, good or bad, will affect others. And the closer you are to a person, the greater the impact each of the decisions you make will be on them. A person can say, you know, I'm my own man, I'm my own woman. I can do whatever I want and they'll just have to deal with it. But why would we want to purposely make any decisions that would negatively affect those whom we love apart from standing up for what is right? What is the solution? Make good and godly decisions. And this comes from being with God, having moral conviction. Spending enough time with God that we are prepared to make good and godly decisions, and also that we have a group of people around us that are pouring into our life so that we have the support of other individuals who can share with us, ask us questions to help us make the decisions we need to make. Friends, the bigger the decision there is to make, the more input you need into that decision. The more time and prayer you need to make, you need to give in seeking God's will for what that decision might be. Commit yourself to making decisions that honor God and are true to his word. Decisions that take into account those around you and take into account your responsibility to your heavenly father. On June 22, 1878, every store in Princeton, New Jersey was closed. The, clothes were store, the stores were closed because of a funeral. Not a funeral for a war hero or a famous state, statesman, but a funeral for a teacher a teacher of theology at Princeton Seminary. Charles Hodge was born in Philadelphia in 1797, the son of an army surgeon. He attended Princeton College and while there made a profession of faith in Jesus after a, attending a revival meeting that had spread through the college during the winter of 1814 and 1815. He became a follower of Jesus and sought him diligently. After graduating from Princeton College, he went on to Princeton Seminary, and after graduating from Princeton Seminary, a year after that, at the age of 23, he became a professor of theology at Princeton Seminary, a position he held until his death. During his lifetime, he taught over 3,000 students. He also wrote, writing over 5,000 pages for a publication called the Princeton Review. He also has a three-volume systematic theology that is still in use today, and you would think, man, that man left a legacy of his writing. But when people talked about Charles Hodge, it wasn't his writings that were the greatest impact. It was the impact he had on his 3,000 students. Now, I say, use, I stop here to make this point. Friends, if there's one thing we are called to do, we are called to make an impact in other people's lives. In the bottom line, we will take no possessions to heaven but who we can await is seeing those people that we've influenced to help them understand the priority of heaven and living a godly life. His greatest legacy, his greatest legacy the legacy of Charles Hodge was the 3,000 students he taught over the years. Perhaps this is the best illustration of what, how much his students loved him began at a as a celebration, kind of a, a rite of honor that began in 1868 and continued every year until his death. After the graduation ceremony was over, after the benediction had been pronounced, the graduating class would go to the front of the university, or the front of the seminary, and they would make a circle, and Charles Hodge would be in the center of that circle. And they would sing 
several verses of the hymn, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name, and then they would rent that circle in tighter, and so the men were shoulder to shoulder, and they would cross their hands, and they would hold the hands of the other seminary students on beside them, and together with him in the middle, they would sing the song, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, and then another doxology would be given. And after the benediction, Hodge would shake hands with each student, and they all went their own ways to minister and live out the gospel. When Charles Hodge died, the entire town of Princeton closed down to honor this man. A former student who gave the address at his funeral said this, when due allowance is made for all his intellect and his learning, the chief power was in his goodness, not in his writings. Christ was enshrined within his heart and was the center of his theology and life. And the student continued, the world shall write upon his monument the word great, but we as students wrote upon it good. He was a good and godly man. Charles Hodge had chosen well. He had chosen Christ above all. He had chosen and asked that the goodness of Christ, the holiness, the righteousness of God, the humility of a follower of him would be evident within his life. The funeral procession moved slowly down Witherspoon Street to the cemetery where his sons laid their father in a grave next to the wife of his youth. They read once more the inscription that Hodge, as a grieving husband, years before had placed on his wife's tombstone, which read, we lay you gently here, our best beloved, to gather strength and beauty for the coming of the Lord. What does that say? All of us will have the opportunity to stand before our God, to come before him. What will be said at our funeral? What will be remembered in heaven? May it be said, friends, that we made good choices, that we followed the example of those who were godly men and women, and that our lives, too, reflect the character of godliness, of goodness, of holiness, because we serve a God who loves us, we serve a God who cares, and we serve a God that we are to imitate and be transformed into his image. Friends, we are never going to do that perfectly, <clears throat> but that does not take away our responsibility to seek him with all our hearts. And may we do that. May we live for his glory, and, we, and may we strive for his goodness.